Isaac Quainall, Tom Stewart. Now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K. Now on KO. This is an ABC podcast. Twitter dished up a beautiful thread this week with a whole lot of Americans who had discovered Aussie rules and they were all basking in the glow of their love for the code that we also love. We thought we would bring it to you. Here is Twitter as a one-act play. <laughs> at Peter Burks. I watched several minutes of an Aussie rules game at 3am on Saturday night and I am now 100% convinced we should be playing that instead of American football. At Leanne, Kansan American chimes in. Yes, join us, Peter. We few Americans who have tasted the sweet nectar of Australian rules football will never be the same. It is time. Your true self has been born this day. At J. Von Wietery. This is why Aussie punters should be mandatory in college football. Those blokes have earned the right to pin the opponent deep and have a laugh with the co-eds. At Brian Pickett. The sport of anarchists. At Michael Fidian. So many good games on YouTube. One of the most famous is the 1989 Grand Final. Brutal, skillful, tragic. Asterix, no American accents were harmed in the making of this art. <laughs> Finn. Howdy. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. Oh my goodness, we're heading into the finals. But before we do, we have a bye to hurdle. <laughs> what on earth will we do with ourselves to discuss those things and more? I am Emma Race and I am joined, as always, by my Sanctum football-loving sisters. I'll let you introduce yourselves. It's Lucy Race here. Nicole Hayes. Alicia, sometimes there's football on. Alicia, sometimes back in the house, back in the house. How are you, Alicia? We haven't seen you for a few weeks. I know. I've been rolling up my sleeves, knee deep in science. Can we ask you about that? You did a TEDx talk. Are we allowed to talk about this? Oh, my gosh. I did a TEDx talk where I talked about the poetics of science. So it was totally in my wheelhouse. I got to be a little poetic a little passionate and a little scientific, but boy, man, something that can stay forever on YouTube is not my favourite <laughs> thing in the world. Let me just say, I'm glad people didn't come to my 1989 year 10 formal or whatever, because boy, oh boy, if that was on YouTube, I would die. And also that time I wore, um, imagine this, a Don't Do Drugs t-shirt, a perm, bubblegum jeans and moon boots. Oh, I want that photo. Cool. Yeah, my what? my kids would totally get me into that now. I live Northside. I see that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah, all the time. Like, my daughters would be all over that. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I was doing wearing those clothes. You've been oh. super busy. You've also been working on your show Particle Wave. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was it's been nearly two years in the making. I was director and co-writer of this show that is a love letter to gravitational waves. Nicole was saying off air that she wasn't always in love with space, but I've always been in love with space since I. I was about five years old and I saw Carl Sagan talk about the beautiful cosmos and saying that we're all made and of star stuff and all connected. So 
this has been such a big sort of show. It's a planetarium show, but it was bringing together a lot of artists and scientists, musicians and video artists, and it's just taken up my entire life and my waking life. And I must say a big shout out to, there was some listeners who came in Melbourne who listened to the pod, who came up to me, and it means so much that you would do that, to come to the show and to say hi to me. So that was really good. But, yeah, gravitational waves, in love with them. I came to see that Science Works, and it is extraordinary. Is it coming back? to Melbourne or, or, but it's around Australia at the moment, right? There's spots you can see it. We did. Yeah. We sort of finished up. So yeah, but yeah, to tour it. And then we're going to New Scientist Live in London in October, which is great. And we're touring. Yeah. Footy (laughs) trip post mad Monday slash through October. Just bringing science to the peeps. It's absolutely incredible. I love star stuff. Yeah, I like the thought that it all connects yeah, us. I like it too. As Carl Sagan said, what's made in an apple pie is also inside of you. So we're all connected. <laughs> wow. I'm friends with anything that's an apple pie yeah. analogy. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. have to say I got distracted when you said gravitational waves because I was thinking grain waves. <laughs> oh, they're yummy. Uh, gravitational waves <laughs> made by two large objects going around each other, just like, uh, you know, Lance Franklin and uh, Jared McVeigh going around each nice. other. Nice. Oh, that's a very nice tie into like the football. Segway. The amazing segue. Of course, their all eyes were on the SCG on the weekend because there was almost not enough chairs. <laughs> they had to pull in Dan Hanabry to help make up chairs. It was beautiful scenes. The AFL should have hired a chairlift. Yes. It was awesome. It is awesome. Though Buddy Franklin, I was really worried about his groins his because groins. that's what you say, right? Groins. It's plural. Is there two? Lots I think of it's groin? a groin. Could you do your groins on the left or your groins on the right? <laughs> is it a quantifiable or? I've never or, heard the plural. No, I don't think the plural exists. I think it's a what's that called? An uncountable noun. If only there was a man here. <laughs> Can I get a man? <laughs> is there any men that talk about football? You know oh. what was really lovely at that game? It's Alistair Nicholson in the house. <laughs> Hang on, I'll just go get him. Go and get Maddie Clinch. <laughs> don't women have groins too? Oh, yes! we do. So why do we need a man? Okay. Well, well we Google. don't know the answer, so obviously a man Well, we will. just need a dictionary. <laughs> Let's Google it with Felicity later on. Mm. Um, okay, so I was worried about his groins. He had... To, he had Aaliyah and oh someone else. Now tall. the story's ruined. It's ruined, but they were moving too far apart. Mm, mm, yeah, I was like, mm. oh, you've got to no. go in a straight. Get in really close. Actually, yeah. a car wash. You know those little rails that you go in in the car wash, so you go straight. That would be useful. <laughs> One of the things that was also super fun in that Sydney St Kilda game was the way that they worked to make sure that Kieran Jack got a goal. Wasn't that lovely? And that was yeah. pretty cute. And it was a fan had leant over the fence and said to Josh Kennedy, um, can you get Kieran a goal? And so he Aww. sent him up forward. Oh, I love it. Did you see during the week, and this has got to do with that, that Andrew Luck, who was a former quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts they from the NFL, they did this highlight reel of him being such a sportsman, patting every time that another player did something, he'd pat him on the bum. And so he was almost going, good one. That was that was actually really yeah. good. You, you stopped me, but that was really good. <laughs> and so it reminded me of the swans coming together yeah. and just the sportsmanship that it showed. It's a pity about their season, yeah. but that game yeah. was actually just friendship, wasn't it? It's funny, isn't it, that you can be not playing finals, but you end on a high. Yeah. And I think Hawthorne did that as well. Yes. And if you will indulge me oh. just for one minute, that was fun to watch. Oh, and yes. especially because it was wreaking havoc with what, with what the, the later positions were going to be for everyone else. But I have to do a big shout out to Plastic Skateboard who <laughs> follows us on Insta <laughs> and commented this, which I think is actually a brilliant theory. And I don't know why we haven't thought of it before. 
Law. Plastic Skateboard says, My latest theory is that because Clarko has mentored so many current coaches, he has taught them in such a way that he has given each one a unique flaw, like the <laughs> exhaust port on the Death Star, if you will, yes. that only he knows and can exploit, making him not only the best coach out there, but also the most diabolical. <laughs> I'm on board with that. But, but is this season Attack of the Clones? It was a bit of a, a oh, bit of a dud. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. It was interesting when we saw Damien Hardwick go head-to-head with Chris Fagan. Oh, maybe we thought it was going to be a bit closer in scores, but actually it was hanging in the balance. Like I, I thought mm. that the, yeah, they took could, there was them. times when yeah. it could Definitely. have Definitely. So Brisbane have really was coming back in the third quarter and Richmond did a great job to just not let them score. That was a super fun game as well. There was like 77,000 people there. One of the other things that really added to the fun was Jack Rewalt was in charge of the playlist for the day and it was all brought to you by Disney and the Wiggles. And the Wiggles. So bless him. Bless him. When you say 77,000 at the MCG, 7,000 at the GWS Suns game, which is disappointing, very disappointing. I I mean, I think this is an ongoing challenge. But, you know, on the upside, Jeremy Cameron nailed his Coleman. So that was, you know, and we were watching with Ben Brown because they were even going into that game. Where did he he nail it to? Sorry. Where did he nail it to? (laughs) Yeah, the The highest point. (laughs) (laughs) So that was an up for them. And, and, you know, and, and we might discuss this a little bit later. You know, they, they've earned themselves a, a home a home final, so that's exciting. That is for the GWS. Talk of the town. Not so fun mm. for Gold Coast, but Geelong Carlton. And I love that Titus O'Reilly said despite Geelong trying all year not to be on top of the ladder, they ended up there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they did. It's, they put away it's those wins the early. The post-buy thing. It's really a thing for them. And I wonder if it carries into finals. Like this is, they've had, they're going to have a bye week. Oh my gosh, it could be yes. a bit of a voodoo for them. Mm. You know what? Uh-oh. The bye, I the don't bye, like the bye. The Ross Lyon Memorial bye round. <laughs> <laughs> so Crap. thanks, Ross Lyon. Yes. Yes. Thanks for leaving us with that bonbonieri, Ross yeah. Lyon. And Absolutely. off he goes. Bomb and go. What mm. about um, how massive that that Ballarat game, the people of Ballarat came oh. out to see what was an absolute trouncing. Yeah. The Bulldogs have found some form at the right time. Oh, and they've they finished in their favourite number seven spot. I yeah, know. If, signs are good. All the fight, If you look at the top, Brisbane finished where, you know, they finished for when they won uh, in 2003. That was second. Oh, yes. And then you've got the Cats at the, mm-hmm. at the top, which was 2007. The Tigers in as well. So, and I, I'm trying to think there's somebody else. Bulldogs. Bulldogs finished in the same spot, mm. as you just said, where they each won a premiership. So, basically, they're all going to win. So, four teams are going to be in the yeah. grand final. Yeah. Team yeah. v. Team. Omen v. Omen. <laughs> it's the new AFL. There's already been a lot of trade talk. Canelio. Canelio. I want to say. It's not that hard. People call him Cogs. Yeah. Well, so that... I find that challenging because mm. there's a hard G. But then Canelio, no. se- he signed back for seven years and bad luck everyone seven else. Yeah. Seven, seven years. years. Seven million dollars. Mm. But I just wanted to talk about the trade table mm. because, uh, you know, uh, there was a headline saying St Kilda could put Jake Carlisle on the trade table and I just thought of you know this beautiful 12 apostles (laughs) sitting out him laid out with some (laughs) apples and pineapple you know is it that kind of trade table or how do you envisage the trade table is it bunnies (laughs) is it the trade table that Brendan Goddard knocked the pretzels off pretzels off and walks into the that's the actual I see a trestle table set Mm. up on an oval 
but it's the Bunnings one. Yeah, I'm the, thinking because you've got to get John Patton on one apparently. He seems to be the big talk yeah. on, on the tray table. I'm feeling like the same people who need to make the chairs need to get to work on the table as well. <laughs> Something really solid. I'm thinking oak. Like a oh. really big table to fit John Patton. There's so many people up in the air for trade. <laughs> so I am imagining all of us with our paddles, teams with our paddles, putting a hand up. So, oh, like we're in an auction at yes. Chrissy's auction house. Yes, because <laughs> um, Essendon were looking at the son Jack Martin because he's out of contract and said that uh, he wants to go to a Victorian-based club. So there's so many, so many balls in the air or groin in the air. <laughs> Well, so long Not as no plural. one does a Banksy and gets shredded. That's right. Oh, good point at Christie's. How are you guys feeling about Sean Burgoyne going to? Yeah, no, pe- that's the no, other stop one. talking. I was no. in denial. I've you just crossed it out. You don't say it out loud. It doesn't happen. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> it's like the fairies in the back of the garden. <laughs> uh, tonight they'll announce the All-Australian. So the squad's been announced. It will be announced tonight who's in the All-Australian team. And that team will, of course, put on their blazers and then proceed to not play anywhere. <laughs> or do anything. <laughs> what should they do with this All-Australian team? I thought they could defend the Ashes. Nice. Oh, they've got the blazers. Someone's got to. <laughs> <laughs> My go-to is always Quidditch. To start. Yeah, no, I just think I could see that happening and, and I like to see that play out. I do have another option though. I was thinking Game of Thrones cosplay instead of blazers. <laughs> yeah, instead of the blazers. So they would have to ditch the blazers. That is the downside of that. But I already, like very quickly, I was thinking, you know, who would be John Stark? And you go straight, like clean cut, all American. John you know, Snow. John Snow. Who did I say? John, John Stark. Stark. Sorry. Well, I guess it kind hello. of works. It does technically. But John mm. Snow would, I'm going with the Bond. You know, clean cut and all the rest of it. I looked at, I was thinking, where do I fit Dusty Martin? Spiky outside, marshmallow inside, the hound, I think. Can you see that? And then you've got, you know, Paddy Dangerfield, who's charismatic, a little quirky, quirky, but maybe a little power hungry. So Daenerys. (laughs) No, I'm (laughs) serious. And, of course, Charlie Cameron is the ninja assassin style of Aya Stark. Probably the one that I thought most about that I challenged the most was um, who would be Cersei, and I think you know the one everybody loves to hate, James Sicily. James Sicily. Oh, that's you with so me? True. You talk cosplay, and I think AFLX. Remember when they came out in those suits? <laughs> no, you mean when they were dressed up and on the skateboard and stuff? Yeah, do you yes, mean? yes, yes, yeah. I think I found something I might miss with AFLX. The dress the ovaries. No, just making fun of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we can still keep doing that. Can we? Let's roll up our sleeves and melee, ladies. Lucy, you noticed a beautiful article this week. I did, and Alicia talking about star stuff and how we're all connected really kind of ties in with this one because it's a story about belonging. It's a beautiful story that was brought to us by the ABC's Catherine Murphy, who we are huge fans of, and it is the story of the Coraline Cobras. Um, so Coraline is in West Gippsland in Victoria, and with a popular population of about 50 locals, the football club was really struggling to field teams. What they did was actively embrace the Sudanese community in the area and the teams are now reinvigorated. In their under-16 team, half of the team is Sudanese. It's just been a fantastic outcome for the club because it was going to fold and that's wonderful to see that you know it's able to continue. But it's actually been even more wonderful for these Sudanese players who were struggling, I guess, to to find a place where they felt like they belonged. Catherine interviewed a number of players, including one named Lado Alphonse, and he shared what an enormous impact being part of the club had meant to him. He said, 
before he found football, he felt he was on the outer. But after playing for nearly five years, he really feels at home. And one of the things he said was, and I'm quoting him here, out here I find peace because out here I find like-minded people. It's not always plain sailing. There are instances where players receive racist slurs on the field. But the way that the club has approached these moments is to basically have reconciliation meetings where they get people closer together to talk about it. And I think this is key. I don't know if you saw that the ANU put out um, their research findings this week for a study called Speak Out Against Racism, but the key findings were published in The Age in an article. And two of the things that really stood out was, one, that students born overseas are twice as likely to experience racial discrimination. And secondly, that over 40% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders reported racial discrimination from teachers. And in that story, one student told how he was racially vilified on the soccer pitch and has never gone back to sport. So I kind of am hoping, and I'm you know, being quite Pollyanna here, but that the message from the Coraline Cobras in coming together and having conversations is something that people might be able to take a leaf out of their books. So I'd like to just leave you with some words from Lado. Sometimes maybe someone will be like, it was in the heat of the game. And I'm just like, wait, okay, the game will be done in 20 minutes. But do you think I'm going to forget about this, what you just said in 20 minutes? Wow. He goes on to say, let's all reflect on that for a second and have a conversation. He's such an activist, just living his life and playing his footy in saying he wants people to come and if they're going to racially vilify him, he says, don't do it from far away. Come up and do it close and then we can have a conversation Mm. about it. We can really talk about why. The other thing that stood out to me in that article was when he said he has an Australian passport. When he travels, he feels like an Australian, gets treated like an Australian, but when he comes back to Australia, he doesn't always feel like an Australian. Mm. I think that's a real indictment. It Mm. does remind us a bit of what Rana Hussain said about her experience being a woman of colour in a scarf in New York and how different it was when she walked around the streets of Melbourne. We all know how important it is to belong, but sometimes it's really tough having those conversations about inclusion and sometimes people can be reluctant to see why it's important to make inclusion one of the goals in your organisation. And it reminds me of a piece that you actually co-authored, Emma. It was published in The Guardian this weekend, but it was a piece about connectedness and the community of women's football. I'd love to ask you how that piece came about. I hosted a panel and it was a conversation with Patty Kinnersley, Julia Kiera, friend of the pod, and Darcy Vessio for the Darabin Falcons. And it was about the untold stories of women's football and really what it was, it was a celebration of the impact of queer women on keeping football alight for all of the years that women's football wasn't in the mainstream and wasn't public and wasn't popular. And the conversation was just astounding. And thanks to Alison Smirnoff, who had videoed it, we were able to extract the audio. And so a couple of weeks later, I listened to it. There was just so many amazing truth bombs. And I do hope that you'll read it, not because I edited it, but because it's their words. I didn't mm. change anything. I The platform was theirs to talk about it. I'm not a member of the queer community, so I didn't want to at all editorialise or have an opinion on it. So I gave the platform to their voices because their stories were incredible. And a lot of it was about not feeling like you had to be defined by what men thought of you. The one thing that Julia said, and she's such an astute person, but she said, you know, the impact of the Pride game may not be visible on everybody 
but it will be visible for the people who need mm. it the most. And it just confirmed for me how important it is that we do celebrate inclusion and diversity on those big platforms like footy. I think it's such an important message. So many people say, oh, I'm sick of this round and that round. Mm. But, you know, it's actually going to save lives. It reminds me of that amazing moment when Megan Rapino, after they'd won, I think it was the quarterfinal, and she just said, you can't win without gay people. And just said <laughs> it was such glory. Life is like that. We what? cannot win without gay people. Totally. No, it's so true. Uh, Nicole, there's been a lot of talk this week. It will not go away because <laughs> Chris Gosh He's not happy that Geelong doesn't get a home final, but everyone has an opinion on it. What's yours? It's hard not to sort of side with him. Basically, Geelong did the extraordinary thing of finishing on top, minor premiers, and the thing that you earn, the most important thing that you value is to earn a home final as a consequence, unless you're Geelong, because Geelong's stadium apparently isn't big enough to justify the game against they're playing Collingwood Friday week at the MCG in the qualifying final. Chris Scott had to say about this. So he's always concerned about the Geelong situation, but he also said this is an issue for interstaters as well. He said West Coast and Brisbane, GWS for that matter, maybe the Crows and Port have to come and win a grand final, probably at their opposition home home ground as well. The system's bizarre. So you need to be that little bit better, which West Coast were last year, effectively saying that there's effectively no reward for finishing on top of the ladder, but there is for everybody else who finished below them. If you look at the Cats record, they've won eight of nine at home. So it is a fairly significant... But how um, many finals have they won at home? Well, so they've lost nine of their last 12 finals and six of the last nine, but all of them are at the G because they don't get to play finals at home. Well, they did play one and and they they lost. lost. I know, I know. In 2013. Um, Not a very big test. It's not a very big test. On the other side of that. There is the fact that they have won three out of four against the Pies at the MCG. So, you know, they've played there enough Mm. maybe that it's almost a ground that they are, you know, they clearly know well. But I don't know if you look at how well, how often the Tigers get games at the G. And then, of course, that's the game where the grand finals fell. It does. It's hard not to see it favouring the Melbourne team. The Tigers leave a toothbrush at the G. Yeah, seriously. You know, the problem that I have is that everything is just a little bit wishy-washy. And so I feel like the AFL need to come out with a policy, decide what it's going to be, communicate it clearly and Put then it stick to it. You know, and even if that policy is we will decide who plays where and you can all, and we'll let you know the day before, just what? communicate it clearly because the problem is for teams like, say, GWS who are going to play a home final at a stadium that holds 24,000 people. It won't fill. Well, it may not. Mm. It depends how many Bulldogs people get along and, and other people go as well. But it's just unclear. And I think that it all comes down to a lack of clear policy. Nathan Burke noted in an article that the executives get a bonus for numbers through the gates. It's hard not to be thinking about that as fairly central to their decision making. Here's a question for you, football fans. If your team gets an advantage from playing at home, would you rather them play at home and you not be able to attend because you can't get a ticket? Or would you rather you get a ticket and they don't get your perceived advantage, Alicia? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, if you can get along, I'd rather go see my team play. And in a big ground such as the G is just a beautiful place to see it. But it is that thing of if you do live locally and you can just sort of walk to the ground, that's pretty special. But um, are you pleasing the most? amount of players but I agree with you Lucy put it on a poster let's let's know the rules mm. <laughs> but Geelong do play home games at the MCG yes they do so they, they play like it though they've been fighting that too well, they've been objecting no, against I, that too 
I don't know. But, you know, if you don't win in big clutch matches at home, mm. how much, like, I look at that West Coast Hawthorne game. Mm. There was no, no one thought Hawthorne was going to win mm. that game. Mm. So West Coast doesn't win that week. And I know that there's always extenuating circumstances and they looked very tired and they'd played a huge game the week before and all those kinds of things. But you don't always win at home. No, but I will tell you the Cats' average winning margin at Cadinia Park is 47.8 points and at the MCG where they went 4-1 and one this year, it's 32.2. So, you know, I think that if you look across extended periods and there is a tendency for most teams to perform better in their home ground. And that means the Tigers and Melbourne and or, not that Melbourne's an issue this year, but, you know, Collingwood, those teams decidedly have an advantage during the finals. One thing that happened in the last couple of weeks that we haven't talked about is that Graham Polly Farmer passed away and he was so revered in this game for so many reasons. Alicia, you have a tribute to him. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, if you haven't read the article by Des Headland, who talks about uh, him in such great reverence, and they're both proud Noongar men. There was a state funeral during the week. He is AFL royalty, like you said. There was a long battle with Alzheimer's. He's the 12th Western Australian to have a state funeral the second sportsman to do so, sports person, but it's a great article. So this is my poem to Polly Farmer. Polly Farmer, there's some dreams you only have in black and white. Polly Farmer on the wing, handballing into the next century, sculpting the ruck to fit his own style. Those big white shorts weaving and ducking towards goal. Graceful, outstretched kicks, sometimes puncturing the clouds. Marks that defied gravity, stopping time to safely cradle the ball. Graham Vivian Farmer, a proud Noongar man, played East Perth, Geelong, West Perth, impassioned and changed their teams forever. First time I saw him was on World of Sport in my Sunday pyjamas. The reverence in the room was palpable, his laugh bigger than football. There's some dreams you only have in black and white. His games all on before I was born. It was a highlight reel for me. The 1963 Geelong Hawthorne Grand Final sewn into my heart. Geelong coasting home for the win. Farmer creating all the waves. To see him play. To see him soar. To see him run. We can only be grateful this was captured on film. What must it have been like for the fans in the stands? What must it have been like for Polly to play in this epoch? Indigenous team of the century, captain, legend, hall of fame. Polly once said, I prepared myself to suffer the consequences of a hundred minutes of football. We loved the consequences of your footy. We were definitely not prepared for your loss. Before Kate Sear went travelling the world, she sat down with a colleague and friend of hers called Liam Elphick to bring you what is a really extraordinary interview about a person who has an amazing impact on football. But before we get to the interview, we just wanted to give a shout out to Liam, who it was recently announced that he won out for Australia's 30 Under 30 Award for LGBTIQ Role Models. And that is a huge achievement. And we salute you, Liam. Please enjoy the interview. Welcome, Liam. Thanks so much, Kate. It's an absolute honour to be here. There's so many topics that we're going to cover today. This is going to be a really broad-ranging interview about your background and what you've done in, in footy. I guess your 
Entry to footy formally, in a way, happened a few years ago when you became a scout. And we have never sat down and really picked apart what being a scout involves on this show. So I'm really keen to hear about it. How did you get into scouting? So I was very lucky to get into AFL scouting. As a kid, I was no good at footy at all. I was much better at soccer, still not great at that. But I had a love for maths and statistics and thought that might be a path I would take in life. Uh, So in high school, one of my teachers, uh, Brent Levitsky, was what we called a tutor back then in high school. And he worked for Sydney Swans as a scout. From about years nine to 12, we'd talk a lot about footy. I'd go along to a lot of the school games and work on some stats. And then when I left high school, uh, he offered me the chance to come along and see what life as a scout was like. So I went to quite a few WAFL games when I was about, I think I must have been 17 at the time, and just watched what he did and what other scouts did at games. Ended up going to some games on my own and writing some reports for Sydney on some players that year. At the end of that year, it turned out that Port Adelaide had an opening for a new WA scout position. I had always supported Port Adelaide, so they came into the competition when I was, I think, five years old, and I clearly had some sort of love for the colour teal and started going (laughs) for them. One of my other old teachers from high school actually worked for Port Adelaide at the time and knew had been around the traps for the year, just sort of sussing out what the industry was like. So he managed to get me an interview and said, look, you've got absolutely no chance of getting this job, but it would be a good experience to have an interview. Maybe you can stay at Sydney for another few years, you know, keep doing some volunteer work and down the track you might get a role. So I went to the interview with the national recruiting manager of Port Adelaide at the time, uh, Jeff Parker, who's still the national recruiting manager. And he asked for uh, some information from me on players I'd seen that year uh, and who I liked in in the upcoming draft. And one of the players I recommended was Jared Irons, who Port Adelaide actually really liked as well and ended up drafting later that year. So we had a long conversation about all those players and about my undying passion for Port Adelaide, which I think (laughs) shone through. It turned out after that that I got the job and I worked for Port Adelaide for the next nine years. Can you teach somebody how to be a scout? (laughs) Well, I got taught how to be a scout, so yes, I would hope so. I think there's a, a misconception that you need to be an elite, outstanding AFL, M or W footballer to be able to be a successful scout. I think certainly playing the game and having that experience helps. But in the end, it's a lot of hard work in actually going to games and learning what you're looking for from the outside. It's a very different viewpoint to playing in the guts uh, when you're sitting up in the grandstand trying to watch what a player is doing. And of course, nowadays, there's a lot more analytics, mathematics, statistics involved in AFL scouting. In terms of whether you can be taught it, Absolutely. But it takes a long time. I felt like it took probably three or four years until I was really comfortable with what I was looking for in games. What are you looking for? It really depends on what club you're working at and and the period of time you're working at that club. When I started at Port Adelaide, we were what some might call a basket case. Uh, So we were down the bottom of the ladder. We also weren't getting incredibly high picks because this was when Gold Coast was coming into the competition. So they got a lot of the top five, top 10 picks at the time. And we were really rebuilding from that low base. So something we were looking for at the time was uh, raw competitiveness and just um, strong characters that could come into the club and bring it back up from that low level. By contrast, a club like Hawthorne for the last decade, 15 years, has been looking mostly for elite kicks and things like character might be lower on that list. So it's really a range of different attributes you look for. Um, Kicking, marking, handballing skills, what their intelligence and decision-making is like on field, how they position their versatility. And I do think uh, a character trait that is is often overlooked is their personality and how they would fit into a club environment. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a difficult question, Liam, which is whether you've ever got anything wrong. Is there ever a player that you you missed that you wish in hindsight you had have recommended Port 
pick up. Absolutely. And if a scout ever tells you they haven't gotten anything wrong, then they're absolutely <laughs> lying. There's just, there's just no way they're telling the truth there. I think part of being a good scout is admitting when you're wrong and learning the lessons from it. There's one that comes to mind. There's obviously many that you get wrong, but there's one that comes to mind. This was probably eight or so years ago. It was a wingman who was playing in the under-18s competition in the, in the WAFL, and he didn't have the best year. He was sort of skirting on the outside, seemed quick, seemed like he was running a bit, could kick a little bit, but he wasn't really getting many possessions and he wasn't showing much competitiveness. So a lot of people had ridden him off. And it got to the National Combine at the end of the year. He ran a beat test of, I think it was 16-1 or 16-2, which was a record at the time, mm-hmm. uh, which made me stand up and go, oh, maybe, maybe this guy is worth looking at. But we had a discussion, I think, at the time at Port Adelaide along the lines of we're trying to pick guys to play football and have all the attributes we need at our club. We're not necessarily picking guys to run around an athletics track. That player, of course, turned out to be Brad Hill. (laughs) So that's one that I certainly regret getting wrong. But in scouting, that's exactly what it's like. You get many wrong along along the way. Um, There's so much subjectivity involved. There's so many variables involved when you're bringing people into your club. And I think it's really important to admit when that happens. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you for being so upfront and honest about it. One of the things we talk about a lot on this program, as you know, is the fact that there are no publicly gay AFL M players, but we don't often think about the fact that there are people working within clubs and officials who are in same-sex relationships and, and how that is handled by clubs. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experiences at Port and how you felt being in that club environment? I came out as gay when I was 21. So I'd, I'd been working at Port Adelaide since I was 18 uh, up until last year. I didn't come out of Port Adelaide until much, much later. So my early experiences of coming out were that I didn't feel like I would be accepted in an AFL club environment as being gay. I didn't feel like that would be something that would allow me to have a longer term career in the AFL, whether as a part-time scout or a full-time scout. So I vividly remember when I got into my first relationship, sort of uh, changing the settings on Facebook so that all of the people I knew at Port Adelaide would be hidden from anything I posted at the time and making sure that I didn't let anything slip in conversation with them for quite a long time. And it was only, I think, um, three years ago when I came out to my colleagues at Port Adelaide. And I was blown away by how accepting they were. And it wasn't accepting in a an overbearing, we love you no matter what type of way. And you're probably not going to get that in an AFL club environment. It was accepting in a more subtle way. And I remember talking about being gay at the end of the 2016 AFL season, sharing that with my colleagues. And at the start of the next season, I had been in a new relationship with my uh, current boyfriend, Luke. And I remember at our first meeting of that year at Port Adelaide with all the scouts in Western Australia, one of the full-time scouts just asked me at the start of the meeting how Luke was going. And to me, that was just such an important moment to recognise that and to just be part of the group as if I was any other person. And then this person who asked me went on to talk about his wife and we all had a conversation about our respective partners. It made me feel so welcome at home. And I'm really grateful to Port Adelaide for how welcoming they have been in that time. In saying that, I don't think the AFL overall necessarily has gotten to that stage with uh, LGBTI members of the community and we have a long way to go to accept them. But I do think the work that's been done in the last few years, particularly through the advent of the AFL and the idea that it's not just the same person at every club, it's not just men at these clubs, it's not just the same type of man at these clubs, has really changed the discussion and I'm hopeful that it will improve going forward. And you and Luke are both involved in advocacy in this space. Now Luke's an elite athlete himself, he's a he's a runner and you're both involved in Proud to Play, right, doing some advocacy work in, in this space, which is fantastic. 
I should say that this work that you've done as a scout has kind of been a side hobby for a long period of time because your career full-time is is in the law and somewhere along the way you developed an interest in and a real expertise in discrimination law as it applies to sport. Was there something in particular that drew you to that space, that area of law? Yeah, I think it's mostly my experiences of being gay and being discriminated against or stigmatised throughout my life. I think particularly in the sporting environment, you still see a lot of homophobia, sexism, racism. The sporting environment is one I've always spent a lot of time in and I wanted to dedicate my career and my work to something that could help break that down. Me being an openly gay scout is is one aspect of that, but I think uh, more importantly in the long term is how we address more systemic discrimination and stigma in the sporting communities. So that's one reason I got into discrimination law. And the other is that in Australia, we don't have a Bill of Rights. We don't have a mechanism that allows us to uh, discuss and rely on these substantive rights. The one main area in which we do have that is discrimination law. So I thought it was a logical entry point for me after I finished law school. Can I ask you about a few specific examples that are quite topical? Because I'm really interested in your take on some of these areas and where the law is going in this sense. I unfortunately have to bring up the Israel Folau case. What's your view on where the Folau case is going to end up? I think the Folau case is not going to end for a long time. I think Israel Folau has a very tough case to make out. His case effectively has to establish that he was sacked from his role because of his religion, or at least because his religion was a predominant factor in the decision-making. The problem with that is going to be that Israel Folau has various religious posts on his social media accounts, although they've since been deleted. At no stage throughout any of those other posts did Rugby Australia look to sanction Israel Folau. They only did on two occasions, the two occasions on which he posted homophobic material. So I think there is an easier case to be made out that Rugby Australia made this decision based on a breach of their code of conduct. This would also fit with a long line of precedent we have now in Australia that reinforces the right of employers to impose social media policies and restrictions on their employees to the exclusion of what some people might call free speech. So I think that would be the the more likely outcome. But of course, you never know what a court's going to decide. The other area I wanted to ask you about was the uh, AFL's approach to women. And as you well know, the AFL has implemented a number of different rules for the women's competition as opposed to the men. And in a very high profile incident last year, Katie Brennan challenged the AFL's tribunal system, arguing that it was discriminatory. What's your view on whether the AFL can sustain a system that is quite different for men and for women, whether it's in relation to pay, uh, rules, tribunal systems, etc.? Is that is that a sustainable model? I think in practice it could be sustainable. I think in law it might be a different question. So under discrimination law, people can't be treated less favourably on the basis of their sex in similar circumstances. That's what discrimination law says. The one issue we might have with, for instance, AFLW players trying to bring an action like the US women's soccer team is bringing uh, around equal pay is that the AFL could say, well, the AFLW and AFLM competitions are not similar circumstances. They're actually very different types of competitions with different rules and different structures. And the more we go down a path of separating those two competitions out and making them different, the harder it will be to bring any sort of discrimination law case. Whether that is happening deliberately or not, there's certainly been a divergence between the AFLW and AFLM competitions. And I hope that we can come back to some sort of convergence on the two in future and a more parity between the women's and men's games. What about in the social media space? What's your view on whether the AFL and other platforms like Twitter and Facebook uh, need to do more to protect players from public comments? 
So a huge issue we've seen in the last year, particularly in the AFLW, is social media abuse. I think we've seen that since the start of the AFLW, but we've really seen it explode uh, at the start of this year. I think there's definitely a, a legal question to be asked about whether AFL clubs and the AFL itself could be liable for psychological harm that has been caused to AFLW players because the approach that's taken so far seems to be just ignore it. It doesn't matter. If you just ignore it, it will go away. Anyone who's been on Twitter and read these threads knows that it's not going away. So it could be the case in future that AFLW players seek to take further action against their clubs or the AFL for failing to address these issues. And I really hope that they take some more proactive steps in future to stop this abuse happening. Yeah. I want to finish up, Liam, by just returning to footy and to your love of Port Adelaide in particular. It's been a tough couple of years as a Port Adelaide supporter. How are you travelling and are you maintaining your love for the game? <laughs> Definitely my love for the game. But as, as with any fan, it's a love-hate relationship. Um, <laughs> you know, working for a decade for Port Adelaide and supporting them is a, is a tough double task uh, when we've had the seasons like we've had in the last few years. You know, there might still be a chance that we make finals this year, but I think we haven't performed to the level we would hope to in the last few years. From my perspective, it's been amazing to see some of the young players we've had come through, you know, Rosie, Butters and Dersma from last year, but various draftees we've had over the years. I mean, that's the best part of scouting is watching these young guys develop and grow into the men that they become and that you can be really proud of of being a part of. And you might have an AFLW team in the next few years too, so that could be exciting, right? Definitely, because I, I don't know who to go for right now. Obviously, I know that you go for Adelaide in the AFLW, which has been a constant source of uh, tension in our friendship. <laughs> And I try my best to let that slide, <laughs> but I'll have to figure out who I actually want to go for until Port Adelaide comes in. Well, I think. you can just you can just barrack for everyone. Yeah, you have had this interesting relationship with sport over a long period of time, where you've both been inside a club, as you say, working as a scout, and then also outside the game through your professional work. And I wonder whether having these two quite different relationships with sport, but not being just a pure fan who can go and enjoy the game has impacted on the way you see sport. Yes, it definitely has. It's a constant tension I've had internally throughout my life, I think, particularly when I came out. I was at the the game last year where Andrew Gaff hit Andrew Brayshaw. I was there with a, a, a young child who's a kid of a friend of mine. I just felt sick to my stomach when I saw it happen because it happened sort of right in front of us. And for the rest of the game, Gaff was getting cheered when he came back on because there were some fans that didn't know what had happened. I didn't go to another AFL game in Perth after that last year and felt really disgusted by how people reacted to that. And that just is a is a microcosm of how I've always felt about sport. It's probably the most important part of my life and always has been. My time as a scout is on my top five list of life experiences and probably always will be, along with being on this podcast. <laughs> Um, but by the same token, I can see the the problems that it has caused and the issues it still faces. And I think Adam Goods has obviously shone a, a strong light on that recently, but there are various other issues we face in sport. I just hope that we can enjoy and cherish sport for what it is in, as a special part of our society in Australia, while not treating it as a place where we exclude people or demean people or abuse people. And I think we see still too much of that. So I really hope moving forward that we can improve on those and allow for sport to be a place for everyone to enjoy, not just a particular group to enjoy. I'm Chelsea Roffey. You're listening to The Outer Sanctum. 
Each week we're really enjoying saluting one of our followers who gets in touch on Twitter and this week we wanted to do a shout out. We see you through the magic mirror, Phineas. He has been such a loyal supporter of the podcast and this week he sent us some really interesting and helpful information and resources on how we can be more accessible on our social media for people who are vision impaired. We really appreciate that. We see you, we love you, we thank you for your voice and we follow you on Twitter with such joy and we love seeing all your comments. That goes for all of you, by the way. There'll be another magic mirror next week. But for now, it's time for us to go around the grounds. I'm Lydia Williams. I play goalkeeper for the women's national team, the Matildas, and I recently published my first uh, children's book. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum, Lydia. I've got to say, I'm having a fangirl moment and it's kind of surreal to see you sitting across the desk. So thank you for coming in and having a chat with us. Can I start by asking if you've got over the World Cup? No, I still have a little bit of a World Cup hangover. Mm. It takes a little while to get over kind of big tournaments like that. We talk quite often on the Outer Sanctum about one of our jobs that we'd least like to do is to be a goalie because you've got that extra pressure and you really did have it going to a penalty shootout. How do you, I guess, address that in the moment? Um, well, I kind of like I grew up in kind of a lot of different uh, life situations that have helped me in, you know, the mental kind of side of goalkeeping. Um, obviously, grew up in the desert. We moved over to Canberra. I had to make friends. There's like a whole bunch of things that I've kind of have to deal with in my life. So when it comes to a penalty shootout, I'm pretty cool, calm and collected. The Really, the only pressure is trying to save the ball, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's not really my fault. Kind of the pressure all goes off you as a goalkeeper during a shootout. Um, and it's kind of more you become the hero if you save it. Um, not necessarily the villain. You mentioned your upbringing then. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your upbringing um, and about your parents. Uh, well, I grew up in Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. Uh, my dad, he was an Aboriginal elder. So we used to travel all around the bush of Western Australia and go to different Aboriginal communities. I had two pet kangaroos growing up. So um, you are that person yeah. that everybody asks about. <laughs> yeah, basically. And I always make sure I'm like, this is not every Australian. This is this is just me and it's a rarity. And then my mum's actually American. So all of her family lives over in America. She came over to work with Indigenous people in, in the desert and then met my dad. They wrote letters to each other and he proposed to her three letters. And then that was it. She kind of moved over and changed her whole life working on Wall Street to live in the desert. From Wall Street to the desert. Yep. And what was your childhood like? Well, I played every sport under the sun. Obviously, Kalgoorlie being a mining town, very country, Australia, every kid plays sport. So I think I played basketball, athletics and soccer and footy out in the desert. And I learned how to kick and catch with the, you know, local Indigenous kids, played barefoot, got to hunt and learn all about Aboriginal culture. Then my mum got a job in Canberra, so we all moved and it's kind of a little bit more high class than Kalgoorlie, I would say. So <laughs> and probably to, colder. Yeah. So I have to had to put on the shoes uh, and walk around in them all the time. But mum was very clear on me joining some sporting teams to make friends. Played basketball and I played soccer. The only position left was a goalie. And I was like, oh, you know what? I kick, I kick and catch um, like footy. And then it basically was like, oh, you're kind of good at this. So we're not going to move you from a goalkeeper. <laughs> I've read that when you were younger, you saw images of Kathy Freeman carrying the Aboriginal flag and that that really inspired you. Do you have other role models? Um, I think as a sporting person, I think Kathy's definitely probably my biggest role model. 
just seeing her at the Sydney 2000 was incredible. But I even got videotapes, I think it was like of the Commonwealth Games in, I think it was 98. You know, all the Aussies were obviously racing. Kathy was racing. And I remember like watching that video over and over again, rewinding it and watching like her race. And I was like, oh, I want to do something like that. Never would I have dreamed that it would be soccer at all. But I knew that I wanted to do something involving sport. One of the reasons we wanted to speak to you today is about a book that you've written. So it's a children's book called Saved. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's pretty exciting. I I met up with my uh, agent maybe like last year and we were just like floating around um, my upbringing and how cool it would be to kind of get it out in a creative form and them being, you know, the getting paid for what they need to do. They found a, a publishing company and they were like, oh, can Lydia write? a children's book of it and I was like oh wow I haven't done English or written anything in like (laughs) 10 years so uh yeah I had to kind of put pen to paper and get my imagination flowing not very hard because it's it's fiction but it's based on a non-fiction story of my life which kind of makes it a little unreal to see it published so yeah it's about a story of little Lydia growing up in the desert and having her friends the animals and trying to find a sport that you know, she's good at and also enjoys. And it just so happens that, you know, soccer fits the mould and she becomes a goalkeeper because no one else wanted to. And yeah, it kind of goes from there. The thing I do love about the book is that little Lydia doesn't come to that straight away. And, you know, when you talk about life experiences that have helped you as a goalkeeper, especially in those really high pressure moments, I think that's reflected in the book that there's a bit of adversity if I can call it that, yeah. for little Lydia. How important is it, do you think, to role model resilience for kids? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, there's so many stories of people, you know, succumbing to hardship. When you get through that, which you can, there's no kind of test or hardship that comes your way that you can't push through. It might really hurt and suck for a while, mm. but it makes you stronger in the long run, which I've definitely learned in my life. Kids can develop that at at an early age, knowing that they can achieve anything they really want to. I think that's going to help generations kind of just create amazing things and groundbreaking things. Mm. You've had a career that spanned, I think, probably 20 years. (laughs) And in that time, you have had injuries. You've done two or you've ruptured two ACLs and come back from that. And I think, am I right that you're nursing a bit of an ankle injury at the moment? Yes. Yep. How do you do that when it stops you from getting out of the, on the park sometimes? Mentally, it's always hard. To be honest, because we kind of play all year round, it almost gives you a bit of a mental break and an emotional break. Rehab's actually harder than when you're in mm. A competition or in um, a season. So right now I'm in Melbourne nursing my my ankle back and, you know, training's actually been quite hard or rehab's been quite hard, but I've been able to, you know, refresh and prepare myself for the next phase, which is obviously Olympic qualifiers coming up. Have you felt that the way the Australian soccer environment gets around you has changed over the past, I think you've been to four World Cups, the structures getting there in terms of the support that you girls need? Yeah, definitely. I think the best way to put it is uh, last World Cup in 2015 um, in Canada, we had one film crew, news crew come to us when we reached the knockout phase. Um, And this time we had people there the whole time. You know, media wise, it's just been unbelievable in the last four years. You know, the support that we have on the pitch and off the pitch from the federations and from our own clubs and everything has just been incredible too. You know, we'd want to get up to where the men's standard is. And I think that's something that has been well documented, not just our sport in every women's Mm. sport. And I wanted to ask you about that. The Our, now, Our Time Is Now campaign for pay equity is about paying 
female athletes, especially in soccer, as well as the men get paid. But it's also about equity across a lot of different areas like equality of opportunity. How have you been a part of that? I think the biggest one is probably our strike that we had in 2015 mm. again. Um, that was obviously a hard decision to to make um, with our team and where we were and what we achieved. But it obviously created some waves and, you know, it sparked a lot of other national teams, you know, that year and the following years having strikes and having conversations with their own federations. And it's still ongoing. I think there was something with the Argentinian women's team and obviously US soccer is taking... Mm them to court. So it's definitely sparked a lot of interest throughout the whole entire world. And you know, obviously the, the debate is how much like revenue do the, does a women's game bring in, but it's more so I think how many people do women inspire to be strong role models. And I think that needs to be um, something that's nurtured in the future. Do you pay much attention to Australian rules football? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Have you got a <laughs> Here team? And there. Uh, well, I grew up in Kalgoorlie, so obviously West Coast. Um, obviously when it was uh, Peter Matera coming out to Kalgoorlie all the time, my dad used to take me to the pubs where they were at <laughs> and get, get photos with them. But being in uh, Canberra, uh, one of our good family friends is uh, Life Membership of uh, the Swans. I kind of have um, divided loyalties there, but then one of my friends here, she's a Saint supporter through and through. So I kind of... <laughs> so you've basically got someone in every state almost. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just no Queensland. <laughs> if you could say something to those little Lydias who might be listening as their parents are listening to the podcast, what would you tell them about sport? Dream big and get out there. There's always a fun time with your mates and you can learn a new skill and yeah, you get out in the sun, which is the best thing. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and talking and talking to us today. Of course, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, that was a real joy. <laughs> I have to say, I had to really try and keep myself in check. I was really quite starstruck. Lydia is a big ticket item. Yeah. She was yeah. so good to watch. Amazing, and her book is just delightful. So I highly recommend it for anyone who has little people in there world who like a nice little book. Perfect. It is time for final business. And Nicole, what have you got? Well, in lieu of Felicity's favourite search engine segment. (laughs) Favourite non-branded search engine. Jeeves with Felicity. (laughs) The search engine, which is now a verb, they've launched an arts and culture app that, you know, in the Australian version inevitably includes sporting artefacts. So the original aim was to bring fine art from around the world to those who might not get to see it. So the Louvre and all the really big international um, museums and get to see these artefacts, which are remote. They've got something like 100 curated digital exhibitions, 11,000 visual artefacts and more than 20 museum views. One of the things they've incorporated for specifically for the Australian landscape is that they've included sport because that's such a big part of our culture. And one of the things that they have is a collection of Donald Bradman bats and one of them because this amazing camera that they that this search engine has invented picked up words that are carved into the bat that are invisible to the human eye I wish they'd tell you what those words were but there's basically all this stuff, this evidence on this bat that you can't actually see with the human eye that's been picked up by this it camera. It probably says, screw the duck. <laughs> <laughs> what if you get a grey lead pencil and you just shade over it yes. really, really lightly? Yeah, I, well, maybe they will now. I'm not sure they're going to scribble on Don Bradman's wow. bat. But it's really cool. So there's all these amazing mm. parts. And obviously, it's a not-for-profit app. I want to make that clear. It's called Great Sporting Land. So you can check it out. It's just another way into and another connection for us between culture, art and sport. And you that's never have to life. leave home. You never 
never have to leave home. That is so cool. I yeah. like the thought of never leaving home. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are looking to leave home this weekend and want to go and see a movie, The Australian Dream is now showing in cinemas around the country. And this weekend, if you are a current AFL member or an AFL club member, there are over 60 participating cinemas who will give you two tickets for the price of one. So we put the link to that up on our Facebook page. We will tweet it as well. So you might want to go and get along and see that. I have an update. I did a little post on Instagram recently. It was an honour roll of women's names who have inspired me, who paved a way for women's football before we got here and I guess it's my way of honouring women without having to make a statue and putting it out the front of the MCG. So I had posted something. People demanded there was a T-shirt. There is now T-shirts available. But there were so many people who nominated the names that should have been on there. So I've made one of the original, which was Cooper, Lee, Hardiman, Hampson, Moston, Caddo, Curtis and Alberti. But you can also get another one, which is as nominated, champions as nominated by the listeners of The Outer Sanctum, and that is Sadler. Price, Bentley, Gibson, Brock, Smith, Graves, Huggins and Rolton. I met Anne last week and she said, I don't need to be on a T-shirt. <laughs> but she is anyway. And I've also made one of the firsts. Mm. Tell me if you know what all these firsts are. we got Sal Rees, the first woman to nominate for the AFL draft. Jill, Lindsay, the first woman to be in the AFL, uh, to get AFL Life membership. Daisy, first woman drafted in the AFLW. Peter, Sell. <laughs> first coach in the AFL system. First female coach in the AFL system, I should say. Peggy. O'Neill. <laughs> first president. First president. Chelsea. Roffy. First female Umpire. to officiate an AFL grand final. Beck. Goddard. <laughs> first coach. coach. Yep. And Erin. Phillips. First winner of uh, the W W Award. Any proceeds from the sale of these T-shirts, which isn't a lot, but we will be donating that to the Central Kimberley Football League, which you know that we we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. So I'll post all that on socials and you can take a look. Just one other update I've got. The plural of groins simply refers to the groin of the left leg and that of the right leg taken together. However, when some teachers say groin, they're referring only to the part of the groin nearest the inner thigh. Wow. I wasn't wrong. Good to know. Without our groin, we're going to be on a live show, maybe. (gasps) Yes. If you haven't made plans for grand final day, you might want to factor this in to your grand final day. Libby Gore does her show on ABC Melbourne on the weekends. She's going to be broadcasting live from the MCG, from the outside of the MCG. It's going to be, her theme for this year is going to be a women's grand final breakfast. So members of the Outer Sanctum will be there. Tess Armstrong will be there representing and uh, Catherine Murphy will be there. Ange Pippos will be there as well. And we hope that you will get along it's before it's way before the bounce so you mm. can come along and have a chat wave to us we'll be hanging around we'll be having a footy chat but i really like the idea of this women's breakfast i mean who's going to go to the north melbourne breakfast now if they can come and have free like breakfast with us breakfast. outside of the <laughs> mcg chocolate and chat with us awesome <laughs> jam donuts for breakfast anyway yes. all right there's nothing left for us to do but say go, go footy, footy. Isaac Quainall. 
Tom Stewart, now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K, now on KO.